Chapter 9 of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey Matt Sympathy or no sympathy, a man's love should no more fail towards his fellows than that love which spent itself on disciples who altogether misunderstood it, like the rain which falls on just and unjust alike. Mark Rutherford Vineyard Cottage, where the retired corn chandler had elected to spend the remnant of his days, was no pretentious stucco villa. It was a real old-fashioned cottage, with a big, roomy porch well covered with honeysuckle and sweet yellow jasmine, and a sitting-room on either side of the door, with one small-paned window, which was certainly not filled with plate glass. It was a snug, bowery little place, and the fresh, dimity curtains at the upper windows and the stand of blossoming plants in the little passage gave it a cheerful and inviting aspect. The tiny lawn was smooth as velvet, and a row of tall white lilies, flanked with fragrant lavender, filled up the one narrow bed that ran by the side of the privet hedge. As Audrey unlatched the little gate, she had a glimpse of Mr. O'Brien in his shirt sleeves. He was smoking in the porch, and so busily engaged in reading his paper that Audrey's light tread failed to arouse him, until a plaintive and fretful voice from within made him turn his head. Father, aren't you ashamed to be sitting there in your shirt sleeves when Miss Ross has come to call? And it's most four o'clock, too, pretty near about tea time. Miss Ross, you don't say so, Prissy, returned Mr. O'Brien, thrusting an arm hastily into the coat that his daughter was holding out in an aggressively reproachful manner. How do you do, Miss Ross? Wait a moment until I can shake hands with you. Now then, the other arm, Prissy. You are as welcome as flowers in May, and is blooming too, isn't she, Prissy? And Mr. O'Brien enforced his compliment with a grasp of the hand that made Audrey wince. I expected a scolding. I did indeed, laughed Audrey, instead of this very kind welcome. It is so long since my last visit, is it not, Mr. O'Brien? Well, ma'am, tell the truth and shame the devil, that's my motto. I'll not deny that Prissy and I were wondering at your absence. What's become of Miss Ross, she said to me only today at dinner, for she has not been near us for an age. And I was right, father, and it is an age since Miss Ross honoured us with a visit, replied his daughter in the plaintive tone that seemed natural to her. It was just five weeks ago, for Susan Larkins had come up about the bit of washing her mother wished to have, though I remember the day well. Five weeks, responded Audrey, with a shake of her head. What a memory you have, Mrs. Baxter, and dear me, how ill you are looking. Is there anything the matter? Looking from one to the other with kindly scrutiny. Mr. O'Brien and his daughter were complete contrasts to each other. He was a stout, grey-haired man with a pleasant, genial countenance, though it was not without its lines of care. Mrs. Baxter, on the contrary, had a long, melancholy face and anxious blue eyes. Her black gown clung to her thin figure in limp folds. Her features were not bad, and a little liveliness and expression would have made her a good-looking woman, but her dejected air and want of colouring detracted from her comeliness, and of late years her voice had grown peevish as well as plaintive, as though her troubles had been too heavy for her. Audrey had a sincere respect for her, but she certainly wished that Mrs. Baxter took a less lugubrious view of life. At times she would try to infuse a little of her own cheerfulness, but she soon found that Mrs. Baxter was too closely wrapped in her melancholy. In her own language, she preferred the house of mourning to the house of feasting. Oh, I hope there is nothing fresh the matter, repeated Audrey, whose clear-sighted sympathy was never at fault. 
She thought that Mr. O'Brien's genial face looked a shade graver than usual. Come and sit down, Miss Ross, and I will be hurrying the girl with the tea, observed Mrs. Baxter mournfully, for she was never too lachrymose to be hospitable, and though she shed tears on slight occasions, she was always disposed to press her hot buttered cakes on her guests, and any refusal to taste her good cheer would have grievously wounded her bruised sensibilities. Father, take Miss Ross to the best parlour, while I help Hannah a bit. And as Mr. Bryan laid aside his pipe and led the way into the house, Audrey followed him, nothing loath. Joe's been troubling Priscilla again, he observed, as Audrey seated herself on the little horsehair sofa beside the open window, and Buff, a great tortoise-shell cat, jumped uninvited on her lap and began purring loudly. Joe, repeated Audrey in a shocked voice. She knew very well who was meant. Joe was the ne'er-do-well of a son-in-law whose iniquities had transformed the young and comely Priscilla into the meagre and colourless Mrs. Baxter. He has no right to trouble her, she went on indignantly. He has been worrying for money again, returned Mr. O'Brien, ruffling up his grey hair in a discontented fashion. He says he is hard up, but that is only one of Joe's lies. He tells lies by the peck. He had a good coat on and looked as thriving as possible, and I know from Atkinson who has been in Leeds, that he is a traveller to some house in the wine trade, and yet he comes here, the bullying rascal, threatening the poor lass to skin and bone, with pretending he can take the law of her for not living with him, and that, after all, his ill usage. I am so sorry, returned Audrey, and her tone said more than her words. He is a bad man, a thoroughly heartless and bad man. Everyone knows that, and she must never go back to him. I hope you told him so. Aye, I did with a touch of gruffness. I found him bullying, and poor Prissy crying her eyes out and looking ready to drop, for she is afraid of him, and I just took down my big stick. Joe, I said, as he began blustering about her, being his true and lawful wife, you just drop that and listen to me. If she is your wife, she is my daughter, our only one, for never chick nor child had we beside Priscilla, and she is going to stop along with me, law or no law. I'll claim my own, there's two to that bargain, father-in-law, he says, with a snare, for you see, he was turning a bit nasty. And you'll claim something else as well, son-in-law, I replied, getting a good grip of the stick, for my blood was up, and I would have felled him to the ground with all the pleasure in life. Only the girl got between us. No, father, no violence, she screeches out. Don't make things worse for poor unhappy me. Joe is not worth your getting into trouble on his account. Go along with you, Joe, and heaven forgive you, but horses wouldn't drag me under your roof again after the way you have treated me. Well, I suppose he made it too hot for him, ma'am, for he soon beat a retreat. Joe was always a coward. I would have hurried him out with a kick, but I thought it better to be prudent, and Priscilla went and had a fit of hysterics in her own room, and she had been looking mortal bad, poor lass, ever since. I wish we could save her these trying scenes, Mr. O'Brien. They get on her nerves. Ah, that is what her mother said. Prissy will never have a day's health if we can't hinder Joe from coming to plague her. I remember my Susan saying that. Why, it was half for Prissy's sake we gave up the shop. What is the good of filling our purse, Tom, when we have plenty for ourselves and Priscilla, she was always saying to me. But there I was fond of the shop. It is no use denying it, and it takes a special sort of education to fit one for idleness. Even now, would you believe it, ma'am, I have a sort of longing to finger the oats and peas again. But you are very fond of your cottage and your garden, Mr. O'Brien. Captain Burnett says it is the prettiest little place about here. Oh, I have been forgetting my manners, and I have never asked after the captain, though he is a prime favourite of mine. Oh, yes, he always has his little joke. 
What will you sell it for, O'Brien, just as it stands? Name your own price. Well, it is a snug little place, and if only my little woman were here, and I had news of Matt. And here Mr. O'Brien pushed his hand through his grey hair again, and sighed as he looked out on his row of lilies. Audrey sat still in sympathising silence. She knew how her old friend loved to unburden himself. He talked to no one else as he did to this girl, not even to the captain. He liked to enlarge in his simple way on his old happy life. When Prissy was young, and he and his wife thought handsome Joe Baxter a grand lover for the girl, with his fine fingers and soft, wheeling tongue. But we were old enough to know better. We were a couple of fools, of course, I know that now, he would say. But he just talked us over. Joe has a rare hand at talking even now. He can use fine words. He has learnt it in his business. I think our worst time was when Prissy's baby died and she began to droop, and in her weakness she let it all out to her mother. I remember my little woman coming into the shop that day with the tears running down her face. Tom, she says, what have we ever done to be so punished? Joe is treating Prissy like a brute, and my poor girl's heart is broken. Dear, dear, how I wanted Matt then. Audrey knew all about this, Matt, at least the little there was to know. One day, soon after Mr. O'Brien had lost his wife, and she had found him sitting alone in the porch, he had begun talking to her of his own accord, of a young brother whom he called Matt, but to no one else had he ever mentioned his name. Audrey had been much touched and surprised by this confidence, and from time to time Mr. O'Brien had continued to speak of him until she was in possession of the main facts. Thomas O'Brien had lost his parents early, and his brothers and sisters had died in infancy, with the exception of the youngest, Matthew, or Matt, as he was generally called. There was so much difference between their ages that Matt was quite a plaything and pet to his elder brother. From all accounts, he was a bright, engaging little fellow, and developed unusual capacity. He was a cot above us, and people took notice of him, and that spoiled him, observed Mr. O'Brien one day. Audrey, piecing the fragments of conversation together, could picture the clever, handsome lad learning his lessons in the little back parlour, while honest Tom served in the shop. But Matt was not always so studious. He would be sliding with the rector's boys, or helping them to make a snowman. Sometimes he would be having tea at the rectory, or with his master, or even with the curates. One of the curates was musical, and Matt had an angelic voice. One could imagine the danger to the precocious, clever boy, and how perhaps on his return he would jibe a little in his impertinent, boyish fashion at thick-headed, clumsy Tom along his corn bins and sacks of split peas. Matt did not wish to be a corn chandler. When Tom married the daughter of a neighbouring baker, Matt was heard to mutter to one of his intimates that Tom might have looked higher for a wife. He grew a little discontented after that, and gave the young couple plenty of trouble until he got his way, a bad way too, and went off to seek his fortunes in London. Tom missed the lad sadly. Even his Susan's rosy cheeks and good humour failed to console him for a while, not until Prissy made her appearance, and in clamorous baby fashion wheedled her way into her father's affections, did his sore heart cease to regret the young brother. Susan used to talk to her husband in her sensible way. It's no use your fretting, Tom, she would say. Boys will be boys, and anything is better for Matt than hanging about here with his hands in his pockets and doing nothing but gossip with the customers. He was growing into idle ways. It was a shame for a big fellow like Matt to be living upon his brother. It is far better for him to be thrown on himself to work for his bread, finished Susan, rocking her baby, for she was a shrewd little person in her way. 
I don't like to think of Matt alone in London, returned Tom slowly, but as he looked into his wife's innocent eyes, he forbore to utter all his thoughts aloud. Tom was old enough to know something of the world. He could guess at the pitfalls that stretched before the lad's unwary feet. Matt was young, barely eighteen. His very gifts of beauty and cleverness might lead him into trouble. I wish I had him here, muttered Tom as he went off to serve a customer. Peterborough is a better place for him than London, for they were living at Peterborough then. Tom cheered up presently when Matt wrote one of his flourishing letters. He was a fine letter writer. He was in luck's way, he told Tom, and had fallen on his feet. At his first application, he had obtained a clerkship in some business house, and his employer had taken a fancy to him. I feel like Dick Whittington, wrote Matt, in his happy, boastful way. All night long, the bells were saying to me, Turn again, turn again, Matt O'Brien, for fortune is before you. I could hear them in my dreams, and then the next morning came a letter from Mr. Turner. Dear old chap, you won't bother about me any more, for I mean to stick to my work like a galley slave. Give my love to Susan, and kiss the little one. Couldn't you have found a better name than that Puritan Priscilla, you foolish Tom? And so on. Audrey once read that letter, and a dozen more of the same type. She thought them very affectionate and clever. Every now and then there were graphic descriptions of a day's amusement or sightseeing. What was it they lacked? Audrey could never answer that question, but she laid them down with a dim feeling of dissatisfaction. Matt used to run down for a day or two when business permitted, and take possession of his shabby little room under the roof. How happy, honest Tom would be on these occasions. He would chuckle to himself as he saw his customers, female customers especially, cast sidelong glances at the handsome dark-haired youth who lounged by the door. Oh, Mrs. Stevenson took him for a gentleman, Tom remarked to Susan once, rubbing his hands over the joke. Matt is so well set up and wears such a good coat. Just look at his boots, and his shirts are ever so much finer than mine. He looks like a young lord in his Sunday best, went on Tom, who admired his young brother with every fibre of his heart. Matt was quite aware of the sensation he made among his old friends and neighbours. He liked to feel his own importance. He came pretty frequently at first. He was tolerant of Susan's homeliness and sisterly advice. He took kindly to Prissy, and brought her a fine coral necklace to wear on her fat, dimpled neck. But after a year or two, he came less often. Leave him alone, Susan would say when Tom grumbled to her over his pipe of an evening. Matt has grown too fine for the shop. Nothing pleased him last time. He wanted napkins with his food because of his moustache, and he complained that his bed was so hard he couldn't sleep on it. It is easy to see that our homely ways do not suit him. I wish your heart were not set on him so much, Tom. It is thankless work to cling to a person who wants to get rid of his belongings. Nay, Susan, you are too hard on the lad, her husband remonstrated. Matt will never cut us. He has an affectionate heart. He is only having his fling, as lads, even the best of them, will at times. By and by he will settle down, and then we shall see more of him. But in spite of Tom's faith, that time never came. By and by, Matt wrote with a greater flourish than ever. Wish me joy, my dear Susan and Tom, he wrote, for I am going to be married, and to the prettiest and the dearest girl in the world. Just fancy, Tom, her uncle is a dean. What do you think of your brother Matt now? Turn again, turn again, Matt O'Brien. That is what the bells said to me, and by Jove they were right. Hadn't I had a rise this Christmas, and now my dear little Olive has promised to take me 
for better or worse. Oh, Tom, you should just see her. She is such a darling, and I am the luckiest fellow in the world to get her. I can see Susan shaking her head and saying in her wise way that I am young to take the cares of life on my shoulders. But when a fellow is head over heels in love, he cannot stop to balance arguments. And after all, we are not so imprudent, for when the dean dies, and he is an old man, Olive will have a pretty penny of her own. So wish me joy, dear Tom, and send me your blessing. Tom fairly wept over this letter. He carried it about with him and read it at intervals during the day. If only she makes the lad happy, he said to Susan, to think of our Matt marrying a gentlewoman, for, of course, a dean's niece is that, and Susan, whose knowledge of the world was small, supposed so too. Tom was hoping that Matt would bring his young wife down to receive his brotherly congratulations in person, but there was always some excuse for the delay. Olive was delicate, she couldn't travel, Matt could not leave her to come himself, and so on. Tom never doubted these excuses. He even made his little joke about the lad becoming a family man. But Susan, who was sharper than her husband, read between the lines. Matt was ashamed of bringing the dean's niece down to see the shop. It was possible, but here Susan almost shuddered at the awfulness of the thought that he might not have told his wife that he had a brother. Matt is as weak as water with all his cleverness, he said to herself. If he has not told her yet, he will put it off from day to day. There is nothing easier than procrastination if you once give in to it. Few people speak the truth like my Tom, bless him. Susan would not grieve her husband by hinting at these suspicions, though they grew stronger as time went on. Matt never brought his wife to see them. He seldom wrote, unless to tell them of the birth of a child, and then his letters were brief and unsatisfactory. Tom once wrote and asked him if he were happy, but somehow Susan and I I've got into our heads that things are not quite square, wrote the simple fellow. Do come and let us have a chat together over our pipes. Prissy is getting quite a big girl. You would hardly know her now. Perhaps Matt was touched by this persistent kindness on his brother's part, for he answered that letter by return of post. One must not expect too much happiness in this crooked old world, he wrote, but you and Susan are such old-fashioned people. Olive and I have as much enjoyment of life as ordinary folk. We quarrel sometimes and make it up again. I was never a very patient mortal, eh, old chap, and one's temper does not improve with age. And then after a little talk about the children who had been ill with Scarlatina, the letter wound up by begging the loan of a five-pound note. Tom did not show this letter to Susan. For the first time in his life he kept a secret from the wife of his bosom. He put two five-pound notes in an envelope and sent them with his love to Olive and the children. A pang of remorse must have crossed Matt's heart at this fresh act of kindness, but though he acknowledged the gift with the utmost gratitude, he neither came nor wrote again for a long time. Sometime after that, Tom took an odd notion in his head. He would go up to London and see Matt and his wife and children. He was just hankering for a sight of the lad, as he told Susan. To be sure, Matt had never invited him, never hinted at such a thing in his letters. He could not be sure of his welcome. Susan tried to dissuade him, but to no purpose. For once, Tom was deaf to his little woman's advice. He left her in charge of the shop one fine spring morning and started for London and Bayswater, where Matt lived. He came back earlier than Susan expected, and there was a sad look in his eyes as he sat down and filled his pipe. Susan forbore to question him at first, 
she got him some supper and a jug of the best ale, and presently he began to talk of his own accord. There were other people living in number 23 Mortimer Terrace. The O'Briens had left more than a year ago, and no one knew where they were. Fancy Matt leaving and never giving me his address, finished Tom with an air of deep depression. He was evidently much wounded at this want of brotherly confidence. But surely you know his business address, dear, Susan asked quietly. No, Tom did not know even that. He reminded her that Matt had long ago left his old employers and had set up for himself, but Tom did not know where his office was. I always wrote to his private address, you know, Susan, he went on. Matt told me that no one ever opened his letters but himself, but how am I to find him out now if he chooses to hide himself from his only brother? And though Tom had said no more, he moped for many a day after that fruitless expedition. By and by, the truth leaked out. Matt was in trouble, and in such trouble that no fraternal help could avail him. One awful day, a day that turned Tom's hair grey with horror and anguish, he heard that Matt, handsome, brilliant Matt, was in a felon's cell, condemned to penal servitude for a long term of years. In a moment of despair, he had forged the name of one of his so-called friends, and by this terrible act had obtained possession of a large sum of money. Tom's anguish at this news was not to be described. He cried like a child, and Susan vainly tried to comfort him. My father's name, he kept repeating. He has disgraced our honest name. I will never forgive him. I will have nothing more to do with him. He has covered us all with shame. But then the next moment he relented at the thought of Matt, beaten down and miserable, and perhaps repentant, in his wretched cell.